All right. Um, we've been going through Mark chapter two. Uh, cha we've been going through Mark. <laughs> now I'm saying we've been going through Mark chapter two. We, we are in chapter two. Um, chapter two, we're going to look at verse 18 to verse 22 today. And we've been looking at the subject of seeing the Son of God, obviously, being the theme of um, the whole of Mark um, as uh, a theme that we, we, we um, chose to go with. Um, one of the, the things that I love about expository preaching, which is what we're doing, preaching from the text and letting the text guide the, the sermon, um, one of the things that I love about expository preaching is that you cannot avoid um, certain subjects. Um, the text leads you to say what you have to say. Um, if we did chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, you already know that next week we're starting with verse 18. And as you prepare during the week, you realize, oh my goodness, no. The, the, the scriptures must be preached in their totality. And so it challenges even the, the one who is preparing the word. Challenges um, their fears uh, to say uh, certain things. It challenges even um, their knowledge um, to grow in certain areas. And um, I remember when my wife and I were reading through Mark a while ago, and we came to verse 18 to verse 22. And I read through it, explained a bit, and looked at my wife and said, I don't know some of it. So I was not looking forward to preaching this text, but we thank God for um, giving us grace, isn't it? And the Holy Spirit to understand his word. Let us um, look at Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. We're looking at the subject of Jesus, pure and unmixed. Jesus, pure and unmixed. Let us read from God's word, shall we? I read from the ESV. As I read, and I, when I finish reading, I'll say this is the word of God. And I want to hear you say, thank be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, the disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast, like, fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews um, a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. 
but new wine is for fresh wine skins. This is the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Even as we sang together, speak, O Lord. Our hearts are open. If they are not open, Lord, open them. Give us humility to bow down to your word. Whatever your word says, may we um, submit ourselves. We pray that you help us to love and honor you. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. If you've been going through Mark with us, you will notice that Jesus is in the business of stirring up trouble. From the time he appeared he began his earth, uh, uh, and began his earthly ministry to the moment he ascended back into heaven, Jesus was busy upsetting tradition and tipping sacred cows. Whether Jews were concerned, Jesus was involved in one religious scandal after another. Jesus had already offended the religious Jews when he publicly, publicly forgave a man's sins. You remember in chapter 2, verse 5? Then they got upset because he attended a feast at Matthew's house in chapter 2, verse 16. Matthew was a text collector, and they, they could not understand why this apparently religious Jew was spending time with sinners. Thus, they were, there was a scandal over sinners. We saw the scandal of grace last week, didn't we? The verses we read um, today open up another scandal between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. This time it involves their traditions. Jesus dared to ignore their rituals, and they were offended once again. It seems to me that no type of person is as hard to deal with as a religious person. You take a person who is held in the grip of tradition, ritual, and legalism. If you step on their little belief system, you will soon discover that most of them are as mean as the devil. It won't take uh, but a second to see that their religion has never penetrated their heart and brought about true salvation and godliness. That is the kind of people Jesus is facing in these verses. He is facing criticism from a group of people who do not know God. They know the rules, the rituals, and the things they have been taught by others, but they do not know the life-changing power of a personal relationship with God. We've already seen the scandal of grace from a scandalous Savior. In these verses, we will watch the Lord face the scandal over sacraments. And the point I want to make is that we, 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 should have, we should see Jesus and be committed to Jesus alone, pure and unmixed. Let me define the word sacrament. A sacrament is a religious ceremony or ritual. Usually people who observe sacraments believe that the, the ritual brings God's favor upon those who observe the ritual, or it brings the favor sometimes of the ancestral spirits. For instance, some people believe that baptism can save the soul. Right? There's so many people that think, if I am baptized, then I will be saved. 
our Roman Catholic friends observe several different sacraments that they can believe they, they, they believe can produce salvation. In reality, God's salvation and God's blessing, if you think about it, um, if, according to the scriptures, come only by grace through faith in Christ alone, as the scriptures reveal. Let's notice the truths that present themselves in this text as we observe the Savior handle the scandal over sacraments and present himself as, um, as, as that we should take him pure and unmixed. There are some things that should not be mixed, should they? We... Um, we should not mix oil and water. We should not mix uh, pineapple and pizza. But that's just a personal conviction, is it? <laughs> so we'll look at, as the text unfolds, first of all, we see in verse 18, Jesus and the rebuke. Look at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees, um, and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? We, we are told in this verse that Pharisees and disciples of, of John the Baptist were known to observe fasting as part of their lifestyle. Fasting is a time of self-denial. It serves, uh, it serves to focus the mind and the heart in an effort to grow spiritually. During a, 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 a period of fasting, the, the flesh is denied attention and the flesh is denied and attention is given to seeking the face of God. The one who is fasting might refrain from eating or from other kinds of physical fulfillment for a period of time. Fasting was never commanded in the law if you look at the Old Testament. In fact, there is, no, there is only one place where fasting is even inferred in the regulations concerning the Day of Atonement. God told the people to afflict their souls in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, with regards to the Day of Atonement. But by the time of Jesus, fasting had morphed and had become a big part of Jewish life. The Pharisees, for instance, fasted two days per week. When you look at Luke chapter um, 18, verse 12, remember the Pharisee when he's praying, he talks about fasting. That they fasted every Monday and Thursday from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Yet their fasting was not done in a sincere effort to seek God. They fasted in an attempt to impress God and man. They would fast for a 12-hour period and then become glatons as soon as the fast was over. I remember back in the day, we had a group fasting at church, and, and, and it was three days without water, without food, and we fasted. And um, there was a group of guys, they, they kept driving out and coming back a few hours uh, later. And whenever they sang, they sang more than any of us. You could see that they have strength. And one day I just followed them, and they were brying me to these guys, and coming back strong. And we we were just hungry, tired, and weak. 
And that's when I said, no more. Uh, this thing, uh, I'll do it by myself without anyone uh, uh, putting me up to it. So the Pharisees believed that God would see their self-denial and bless them for their sacrifice. They also did everything they could to make sure that others knew that they were fasting, right? They, they, they would make uh, themselves to be seen. They would uh, um, whiten their faces, put ashes on their heads. They, would, they, they tried to look as sad and as mournful as possible. They wanted everyone to know what they were doing. Not only did the religious Jews practice and, and regulate fasting, they commanded others to do it also. They expected the common man to follow their lead and fast like they did. These men had elevated a tradition of men until it had the same authority as the law. While we are on the subject, let me give a few thoughts concerning the matter of fasting. First of all, fasting is taking time that would normally be spent eating, sleeping, or enjoying some other physical pleasure and using that time for prayer, Bible study, and meditation. Secondly, fasting is the result of proper spiritual priorities. The, the, the meat of the word and, and pure moments of fellowship with God are, for, are far more important than our physical needs. Fasting acknowledges this priority. Thirdly, uh, fasting does not impress God and it does not persuade God. We, we don't do it to twist the hand of God. Fourthly, fasting only has merit if it is being used to seek God's face for a time of personal spiritual growth. Let's continue, um, get back to verse 18. Jesus and his disciples are enjoying a feast at the house of Matthew. It is possible that the, th this feast was being held on Monday or on a Thursday, uh, one of the Jewish fasting days. And this upset the Pharisees. Uh, the disciples of John are upset too. Remember their leader had been arrested and is possibly dead at this time. They are mourning the absence of John and they are upset that Jesus isn't upset too. Here is their problem. Jesus didn't keep their rules. He didn't walk to the beat of their drum. These men had already decided how good people were supposed to live. Jesus refused to allow himself to be pressed into their religious mold. He refused to allow death rituals to become the focus of his life and ministry. Let me say this. There's nothing wrong with fasting or with some of the other little religious things that people do. It is when the rituals become mere lifeless routines that trouble arises. The ritual often comes to take the place of God as the focus of worship. Thus, the ritual can keep a lost person from trusting in God because the ritual is enough for the one who observes it. They, they, they do not trust in God anymore, but they trust in the ritual. I know a young man that I've been trying to share the gospel with. And he tells me that I fast, I, 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 I pray. But when you look at his life, outside of these rituals that he does, it is in tatters. It is, it is absolutely godless. Mm -hmm. 
when we think the ritual will, will give us a place and a standing before God, we have stopped trusting God and start trusting the ritual. But it can also keep a believer from experiencing genuine communion with God. Some rituals are evil at their core. Things like lighting candles for the dead and praying to saints and statues is heresy. Things like praying um, or, or worshiping ancestral spirits. But even things like praying, singing, going to church and reading the Bible can become nothing uh, more than lifeless routines if the focus is on the ritual and not on the Lord. When you ask someone, are you a believer? And they say, yes. And you say, why? And they say, I go to church. Really? Going to church is important. Right? Believers must go to church. But going to church does, make, does not make us believers, does it? So we see Jesus and the rebuke in verse 18. Now, in verse 19, verse 20, we see Jesus and his response. Jesus and his response. Look at verse 19. There's an explanation here in verse 19 that he makes, and he uses the imagery of the wedding and celebration. He responds to their criticism by talking about a wedding. Now, weddings in those days were nothing like they are in our day. Now, as soon as the wedding wraps up in our day, the newlyweds leave to their honeymoon or to, or to their new home. In Jesus' day, things were different. As soon as the wedding was over, in those days, the newlyweds hosted their families and friends in a week-long celebration. They would spend seven days feasting and being treated like a king and a queen. Life in those desert lands was difficult at best. People worked for, uh, for, from sunup to sundown just to survive day to day. When, when that wedding came, the married couple was treated like royalty for a week. It was the best week of their lives, and they enjoyed it to the full. Jesus tells his critics that his presence among his people is like that of a bridegroom among his friends. It is not a time for mourning, self-denial, and sadness. It is a time for celebration and gladness. To be sad, to mourn, to fast while the Lord was present would be out of character with, the Lord, with what the Lord was doing in those days. There are a couple of lessons that we can glean from this verse. First of all, you'll notice that the Jews were caught up in their rituals and their traditions that they missed the blessed reality right before them. Had they known who Jesus was, they would have ceased their fasting and joined in on the feasting. Sometimes we are guilty of the same thing, aren't we? We, we do church thing out of habit and fail to recognize the presence of God that is with us all the time. God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God who says, I am with you always to the very end of the ages. If we could learn to recognize his constant presence with us, if it will transform every moment of our lives, gathering together will not be routine. We would cease our growling and complaining and we would walk in joy. 
we, we would see a change in the way we come to church. We would come looking for Jesus. We would come to worship. Secondly, I want you to notice the fasting of the Jews may have impressed those who saw them, but it did not impress the Lord. He knew their hearts, right? He knew their hearts. He knew they were not seeking him, and he knew they were still trapped in their sins. Uh, people who um, make good things, especially, um, what do we call them? Spiritual disciplines. Uh, they make them routine, and they make them rituals, like prayer end up thinking that the words are more important than the heart. You see, in, in prayer, the heart goes before the mouth. The, 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 that's why Jesus Christ, when he looked at the Pharisees, he said, these people, um, and quoting from Isaiah, says, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isn't it true with Christians even today? With those who profess to know Christ, those who profess to be believers, they, they, they come and they sing, but their hearts are far. They are harboring bitterness. They are harboring anger. Unforgiveness. They are in conflict with each other. They are not at peace. They sing about the peace of the Lord, but they are not at peace with one another. Their physical ears are open to hear, but their spiritual ears are closed. They are hardening themselves against God's word. And the best thing about that, it's not best, but I'm just saying, is that you cannot see it. No one can see it. Because we are not prophets, right? We, we, we don't know. Your hearts. Only God knows your hearts. The people were impressed by the Pharisees. They, they, they saw them as people that had piety. But Jesus, when he came on the scene, was not at all impressed. The good things we do in the name of religion and worship are nothing but hypocrisy if they are not done out of a heart that is sincerely seeking the Lord. Singing hymns, going to church, preaching, teaching, they all become hypocritical if they do not arise out of a genuine desire to worship and glorify the Lord. Look at verse 20. Having set the record straight, Jesus tells all who are listening that they will come, there will come a day when they, the, the bridegroom will be taken away. His disciples will fast and be sorrowful in that day. The, the phrase taken away speaks of a sudden removal. Jesus is referring to the day when he will be taken away and crucified. In that dark and dreadful day, his followers will mourn and fast. That will be a day of sadness for his people. 
that day will come. But for now, the disciples of the Lord were right to be excited and joyful in his presence. You see, fasting arises from a heart that is sorrowful and broken. But when the presence of the Lord is among his people, there is no place for sadness, grief, or sorrow. When the Lord is present, his people are to acknowledge him with singing, shouting, and feasting. If we are eager, and ever, if we ever get hold of that truth, it will revolutionize our worship services. Vibrancy in worship is not in how loud we sing, but it's in how sincere our hearts are. We would abandon the dead, dusty traditions that do not honor the Lord, and we would honor and we would look for ways to express our excitement and joy over who is, who Jesus is, and what he has done for us. One of the things that I, I desire that our singing together will do as we think about the words that we sing is that our hearts, our hearts will be ignited and, and we will want to listen and we will want to obey. We will want to submit, not because we want to please God, but because we love him. It is out of love for him and a desire for his glory. Thirdly, we see Jesus and his revelation in verses 21 to 22. Verse 21 to 22, to make his point crystal clear, Jesus uses two vivid illustrations from everyday life. He wants the Jews to understand that he will not come to preach a new and improved Judaism. He, he wants them to know that he did not come to re-upholster re their worn-out religion. He wants them to know that he has come to do away with the old and bring something entirely new. He is not coming to add something to their religion. He's coming to destroy their religion and put up himself as the one pure and unmixed. He wants them to know that their religion, their rituals, and their rules have absolutely no place in what he was accomplishing. That's why it's strange when I hear people say Judaism and Christianity are similar. They are not similar. They are not similar. They might be monotheistic religions, but they are not similar. Jesus did not come to add to the Judaistic religion. He came to set up a new way of, 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 of going to God. He came to be the mediator between God and man. Jesus wants these people to know that he, what he's doing and what they are doing is so different that they can never be connected. It can never be a Jesus plus. It must be a Jesus alone. He wants them to get the message that his gospel cannot be contained within the confines of their religion. Jesus has not come to refurbish Judaism. He came to establish Christianity. Look at verse 21. The first illustration that Jesus makes, he uses one that they would have been familiar with. In, in, in that day, clothes were not thrown out when they became worn 
um, and torn. Every mother was a seamstress and she would patch those clothes so that their lifespan would be extended. Most of us think nothing about throwing old clothes when they've become worn and torn. But I'm sure that there are some here who can remember having to wear clothes with patches on them because your family couldn't afford to buy new clothes. That was the situation in nearly every home in Jesus' time. If a, if a person took a torn and worn garment and sewed a, a new piece of cloth as a patch, the first time it got wet and dried, the new piece of cloth would shrink. When it did, it would pull apart the older, weaker garment, and the whole would be worse than before. Both the new patch and the old garment would be lost. The spiritual principle here is very clear. The old cannot be blended with the new. Judaism, with its external rituals and rules, could not contain Christianity with its emphasis on internal relationship with God. Jesus did not come to blend his teaching and his, uh, his teaching with the teachings of the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law and deliver his people from the bondage of man-made rituals. Now he makes another illustration, and this time is the illustration of containers. In verse 22, this they would have understood as well as he, he gave this illustration. Jesus uses the imagery of wine bottles. Glass and plastic bottles did not exist in those days. Ancient people often used skin of a goat as a container for their wine. When a goat was killed, the skin was cut around the neck and the legs and pulled off um, the, the body in one piece. The, the leg openings would be sewed, um, shut, and sealed. And, 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 and what had been the goat's neck would be used as a spout. The, the hide would be partially tanned. Then the hide would be used as a wine bottle or a wine skin. The hide was very elastic and would expand as the wine, the wine fermented inside. Now, these wine skins dried over time. They would be dry and become hard. If new wine was poured into an old wine skin, and began to ferment, the old white skins wouldn't, couldn't stretch anymore to accommodate the gases put off by the fermenting wine and would burst. The wine and the wine skin would both be lost. And thus the tragedy would be twice as great. The only fit container for a new wine was a new wine skin. Again, the spiritual principle is clear here. Judaism with its rituals and rules, could not contain the ministry and message of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not come to pour new wine of his spirit into hearts that were trying to please God by keeping the rules and traditions of men. Jesus came to give new life to lost sinners. He came to take the old white skins of our flesh and, and, and make us new by his power to remove the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. When he transformed us through the new birth, he was ready to receive the new wine. We are ready to receive the new wine of his spirit. Only one who has been saved by grace is born again and is a fit container for the spirit of God. Fortunately for us, we are not in danger of mixing Christianity 
with Judaism, right? So I might be preaching about Judaism and you're listening and probably preaching to the crowd outside. But that does not mean we are out of the woods, does it? There are some who want to add Jesus to their cultural traditions, where Jesus does not necessarily come to change, but to enhance. There's this idea of Jesus being the uh, proto-ancestor, um, the, the first ancestor in the African tradition. They, they don't deny Jesus, right? They don't deny him. They welcome him. He's added to our collection of uh, ancestral uh, spirits. He becomes uh, the chief ancestor. But he doesn't necessarily change. He enhances. He makes it better. He upgrades. So they are able to go to church and still be involved in ancestral worship. They claim the name of Christ and still are able at night to go to Sangomas. I heard about Sangomas that use the Bible. So these are like you know, they, 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 I think they arrived at their zenith of Sangomaism. They, they, they mix it, and so people become comfortable to go into a Sangoma who uses uh, bones and, and the Bible at the same time and say, this is the one. He speaks my voice. He speaks my language. There are some who claim the name of Christ, but seek direction from astrology. Today we have Christians who know their star signs and their personality the personality traits that come with those star signs more than they know the Bible. They can tell you I'm a Libra, I don't know what that means. They can tell you I'm a Cancer, I'm a Capricorn, I'm a what what, but they cannot tell you what the Bible talks about the love of God. They cannot tell you what the Bible talks about sin. They don't know the scriptures, but they read the newspapers on the star signs weekly to get direction from that. What does it say about my personality? Hey, this is so true of me. Today we have Christians who do these things. We are in danger also of mixing worldly thinking with Christianity. Today, there are so many professing Christians who say that one can become a practicing homosexual and a Christian at the same time. Christians, uh, the spirit of, of, of feminism that has so pervaded our thinking that women are becoming pastors. Although none of us, none of these things, none of these things can be defended convincingly from the scriptures. We would have to deny the scriptures. But as a result, the spirit of the age and Christians wanting to accommodate that spirit at the expense of the word of God. We are not in danger of Judaism, brothers and sisters. We might not even know the tenets of, 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 of Judaism. We, we, we might not know the depths of their beliefs, but we are also in the same danger of mixing Christianity with other things. When Jesus moves in, he creates a new life within you. The new life he places 
in you begins to work its way out of you. Before long, what the Lord has done on the inside becomes clear on the outside and he changes the old man into a new creature for the glory of the Lord. The new wine of Jesus on the inside will best the old wine skins on the outside. The old flesh cannot contain the work of God in the heart. Jesus does not come to give you a software update. Jesus comes to give you completely new life. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. And when Jesus comes, he brings new life. He who is in Christ is what? A new creature. Not an improved creature. Not an updated, upgraded creature, a new creature. The old things, what have happened to them? The new things have come. As Jesus feels the wineskins of our lives, he stretches out and he stretches us to new limits. The inner pressure of his presence displaces unneeded things and fills every area of our lives. This new life is so powerful, so dynamic, so different that the old wineskins of religion and all ways of living must give way to the new life he places within us. It's not Jesus plus ancestral worship. It's not Jesus plus astrology. It's not Jesus plus the spirit of the age. It's Jesus pure and unmixed. Let me make it clear that Jesus did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. He fulfilled, he filled full the moral law in that he kept it to the letter. He filled full the ceremonial law in that he was the absolute perfect fulfillment of every type, symbol, and sacrifice. He filled full the judicial law in that he was the perfect embodiment of God's justice. When he comes in, he comes with such fullness that there is no desire for the old garment or the old wineskin. Jesus comes into our hearts not to place us under the yoke of the law, but to enable us to live out God's perfect will through the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't smash us under the law. He places his law within our hearts and helps us to achieve God's best in our lives. He comes in to enable us to live our lives to the glory of God. The Lord can never do that. It can never do that. I will not use this conclusion, but let me use. When I um, was a single man, and uh, I am sure most of you would remember, uh, when I came to Rustenbeck, I was a single man. And um, I moved to where we are living now and put in drapes and some pictures. Um, but there were some people that would come <laughs> and they would tell me, no, there's someone needed in here. <laughs> and it was true. When my wife came in, there was a complete change. The house started to reflect the character of my wife. People could see that this man is not hopeless anymore. 
it took on the character. She wanted to beautify it. She wanted to make it, um, you know, look as presentable. When you're a Christian, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, one of the indications will be when you take on the character of Christ, when your life starts transforming, when you are no longer what you used to be, but are transformed, are made new, and continue growing. Because you did not add Jesus to your life, but Jesus transformed you. Jesus pure and unmixed. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we are so prone to wonder, prone to live the God we love. We are so prone to take ideas that are not of your word and mix them with your word as the Pharisees and the disciples of John were so prone to want to keep their rituals and religions without realizing that Jesus was indeed the one who came to fulfill it all. May you help us, Lord, to submit to you alone. Your truth can be hard sometimes, but we pray for humility in our hearts to bow the knee anyways. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.